Well, let's begin, brother. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our second lesson of either eight or nine. We're going to be ending this, as I said, before Christmas. So that's this year, Christmas this year, because <laughs> Linda Reed immediately was looking at her calendar, passing Christmas 14, 18, 22, 20, you know, yep, Christmas, 2088. Uh, we'll be done by Christmas, but so this morning, let's be opening our Bibles to Romans chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1. And actually, I didn't get the reference at the top, so I should say lesson number 2, the problem with sin, Romans 1, 18-320. That's what I am saying we're going to do today, but... Uh, this is not frustrating, it's just a challenge. I have worked on this and worked on this, and I don't say that to, for you to say, oh, what a wonderful person, he's so studious. I'm not interested in that. What I'm getting at is there's been a lot of time spent on this lesson, as in every lesson. You know, waiting on the Lord, reading, thinking, contemplating, trying to understand what's this, how to do it. It gets it all done, prepare it, redo it, redo it another time, give it to Evan, have him run it off, and even last night, redoing it again and having giving it back to me, even for the 14th or 15th time. And so this morning, that's great. And this morning I'm out uh, reading some material, and I just feel the Lord say, now, let's talk about the class this morning. <laughs> Greater clarity. <laughs> and C.J. Mahaney, years ago, was talking about preaching and ministering and spending all the time he has to in prayer and study and the construction, preparation, construction of a message and the presentation of a message. Fine. And the issue with any message, if we're going to be faithful to the Lord to honor Him so that the people of God are matured and built up and, and receive from God what God wants them to receive, we have to be not only diligent with the word but we have to do it in a way that what is God wanting to say to the class to the church at this particular moment in time rather than oh well there's just general information here we'll just give them that and move along there is but how is it specified for this group of people this Sunday morning at Lakeview Christian Center because God knows what you do you need I have no idea what you need except in a very general way and he does this and he labors over it. he preaches Sunday morning and Monday morning he gets up and he says, clarity. In other words, oh, this is what I should have said, and this is the way I should have said it. I yelled. When he said that, I yelled, like a lot of other pastors, because we know how that is. And you think, Lord, I have been doing this now for a little bit of time for this particular class. Why couldn't you have whispered these words in me before I put the lesson together? It's just the way God is. And it makes life interesting. So I'm not sure if I'm going to get through the whole lesson this morning because I think there's an emphasis here that I believe the Lord wants me to give, but I, you just have to trust me as we go through it. If I feel that continuing to press, fine. If I don't, I'll move along. So that's what that's all about. Father, how good you are. Father, what a kind, good, gracious, merciful, Faithful, patient, forbearing, gentle, joy-filled, 
loving God you are. Father, there are not enough adjectives, phrases, and clauses in the English language or in every language on earth to say about you who you are. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have not withheld the revelation, the power, and the effectiveness of your word from us, but you have given it to us by your spirit, who is the spirit of your word, enlivening it to us, applying it to us, and doing everything in us that is necessary to conform us and to recreate us into the image of this great last Adam, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this. Father, we pray that as we go through Romans, as in every time we open our mouths concerning your word, and we pray it because you said you would do it, Father, we pray that your word will not return into your void, but it will do any and everything that you desire it to do, accomplishing the fullness of your purpose so that now in part and on that day in full, we, your children, may be to the glory and praise of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, come on in, everybody. Last week, you remember, the Apostle Paul defines the gospel. What is the gospel? And typically, if we were to be asked, what is the gospel? Typically, we would say, and this is not incorrect, so don't take this as an adjustment and never say it this way again. Because we can define the gospel doing it correctly in several ways, but just giving emphases to what we believe needs to be emphasized at that moment. And so typically, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of God's love for us in Christ. He has saved us, you know, through the death of Jesus. The gospel is God's redeeming um, uh, redemption in Christ, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's about Jesus. It's about God's love for us. It's about our salvation. And absolutely and completely, that is correct. But it's interesting that Paul approaches the presentation and the definition and the issue of the gospel from a perspective that is either you may want to say either deeper or higher. He gets it away from us primarily because the gospel is not about us primarily. And he gets the gospel to the place where it needs to be. So what does Paul say in Romans 116? Remember, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Everyone believes Jew first in the Greek. Then what? For in it the what? Is revealed what? the righteousness of God. Therefore, what we're going to see in Romans, in the entire letter, but especially in this beginning section, we're going to see the emphasis is going to be from the perspective of God's righteousness. This is the emphasis that Paul is making. Why? Because he's laying a broad, deep foundation to a church which he hasn't visited a church where he has not preached and ministered the gospel. And so he's throwing out, if you would, the net in a way 
to cover the salient issue. And the salient issue of the gospel, the central issue of the gospel is not about us. The central issue of the gospel is about God's righteousness, which was repudiated in Adam in Genesis and is being recovered through the gospel. That's the issue of the gospel. And everything that Paul will talk about, especially in these verses before us this morning and as we travel through over the next few weeks, will be centralized, based in, connected to, the result of, within the atmosphere and the context of one issue primarily, and that issue is the righteousness of God. Because if we fail to see the gospel, if we fail to understand the gospel, if we fail to live and appreciate the gospel from the perspective of God's righteousness, it's not that we're going to miss the gospel, it's that we are going to miss, I think, the greatest area of motivation and empowerment. What God is doing in the gospel is about himself. This is the reason we are to be honoring the gospel. This is the reason why we are to be obeying the gospel. This is the reason why the gospel is so incredibly incredible because it is God's gift to us, enabling us to be able to be a people who declare a most basic issue God's righteousness in a fallen, physically fallen people to be manifested fully in the new heaven and the new earth. So let's make sure that we tweak, if necessary, our understanding and make adjustments to our understanding and the flavor of what the gospel is. So what is the gospel? It is the righteousness of God. It expresses a most fundamental truth. The gospel is expressing and dealing with and revealing a most fundamental truth about God, about who He is and how He is, that God is both a God who is just and a God who, <coughs> who is loving. Both equally are God. God is not more loving than he is just. He is not more just than he is loving. He is fully just and he is fully loving. I, I, I get disturbed sometimes when I hear it seem in, in ministry and so on and people preaching that, that we want to emphasize certain aspects of God. I understand to do that, to make an emphasis, but to make it such that it seems as if God has issues in him that are greater than other issues. Everything about God Every attribute of God is fully who He is. It's not like 10% is this and 5% of that. He is 100% just. He is 100% love. So how can He be all of that together? Well, that's just who God is. So let's make sure we see that. And so this understanding of righteousness encompasses, if you would, these two major attributes and many, many, many more, but these two major attributes especially. And we want to make sure that we carry these two attributes in our thoughts and our minds because one of the primary issues that we're going to find in the gospel is the vindication of God. The vindication of God, as we'll get into chapter 3, either later on this morning, which doesn't look likely, or maybe next week. Well, there it is, you know. This is the revelation. God's justice 
and God's love. And believers, let's not make one more important than the other. Let's make sure that both of them sit equally in our understanding and in our appreciation and in the way we live before God. Too often we set love as the thing and God's justice over here. No, both are critical to an understanding and a revelation of God's righteousness. Begin to decrease one or step on one for the preference of the other begins to cause God's righteousness not to be the revelation of righteousness as it is in Him. Listen to the way this is set. Remember in uh, Exodus chapter 34, Moses has asked God, show me, I pray thee, thy glory. Do you remember that? Okay, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you. I mean, Moses has already seen and known God several times by now. Remember? The burning bush, the opening of the Red Sea. I mean, like, what do you mean you want to see God's glory? What do you mean? He want, oh, it's like Philippians 3.10. Oh, that I may know him. And you think, well, Paul, you know God. There's that yearning to always know more. And so the Lord puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by him. And he, God pronounces who he is before Moses, and he says, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, that's his name, Yahweh, passed before him and pronounced, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear thee guilty. God is equally just and he's equally loving and merciful and kind and good and patient and all the other. So you see, this means that God is completely and perfectly and eternally right. If you take the word righteous, you know, it's kind of a big word, and you cut off the nest on it, you just see the word right. And so that's what I want to bear down this morning. God is eternally and perfectly right in who he is and in all that he does or does not do. Whatever God does is right. Whatever God does not do is also what? Right. Now, how many of us, come on, let's, let's, I, my hand is up already before I ask the question. How many of us feel under certain circumstances and things have happened or whatever, that's not right? Come on, come on, come on. Well, all of us, all of us, unless you're dead this morning, you feel that way. Well, I understand that in the natural, but you see, that's Satan's attack against us. That's the same attack. Adam, hath God said it's not right for God to restrict your ability to eat of the fruit of that tree? It's not right, but God has a right to this, and he is right in doing this. So make sure we get this deep in us this morning, that everything, everything about God of who he is and everything he does do and everything he does not do is what? Is right. It's right. All, therefore, everything God does or does not do is right. All of his judgments are right. All of his decisions are right. All of his actions are right and they are good. You remember in Genesis after each day, what? It was good. It was good. It was good. Everything about God is what? Right. Right. And that right is good. Don't put good before right. Everything about God is what? <clears throat> right. And that right is always and completely what? Good. Now, theologically, that's a great thing. Ra ra, hu ta ta, wonderful Jesus, praise your name, thank you, Lord. Where the rubber hits the road is today or tomorrow, 
when something happens in my life and I don't like it and I begin to murmur against God. Now, come on, come on. Murmur, murmur. Amen? And so you see, the gospel is a revelation of something very deep about me that God is mending, overcoming, dealing with, and recreating. It's my whole attitude about God in this sinful and fallen world. So this is why the word righteousness or righteous is the dominant theme of the letter. You see that. The word righteousness occurs 29 times in these 16 chapters. 29 times. And the word righteous occurs eight times. And so Romans is about the righteousness of God as revealed and administered and worked out in man by the gospel. So Romans is about the righteousness of God through the means of the gospel. I know we sometimes say Romans is about the gospel. Well, it is, but the gospel is the means of the revelation, the application, and the administration of the gospel, which brings about in us the righteousness of our God. You see that? So the gospel is the means of God bringing about in us what we lost in Adam. When God created man, remember in his image, he created man to be, the righteous, to be righteous in order to reflect God's own righteousness. Adam was created to be and as a righteous being. You know, these little pictures of Adam and Eve kind of standing around and kind of looking at one another and whatever, and little, you know, uh, fake things hiding their, their bodies and whatever, and they're kind of walking in the garden and two little innocent. This is not a picture of Adam and Eve. These are two glorious beings upon the earth. These two people are reflective of the glory and the majesty and the righteousness of God. Something incredible happened in the fall when they lost all that. When the Bible says they were naked, that means they were stripped of all of that divine presence in them. I think had we seen Adam in his uh, prelapsarian state, prelapse, before he lapsed, before he sinned, in his prelapsarian state, I think we would say, oh, oh, who are you? Who are you? You know, we see these silly little pictures of idyllic little people. This man and this woman are there as the image of the glory and majesty and the righteousness of God on earth. That's who they are. Get a better image of who Adam and Eve are. They're two young people trying to figure out life. <laughs> God has planted in them his glory, his image. But we haven't thought of that, have we? These are two majestic people. Even angels didn't have what Adam and Eve have, and people fell down for fear in front of angels. I think had we seen Adam and Eve, we would have <laughs> and hit the ground. Oh, at least been, whew, wow. Why were they naked? Because they were stripped of all that because of sin. And so here are two people who are containers of the very righteousness of our God in humanity. And God says, I want you to be my image upon the earth. And remember the mandates to multiply and fulfill the earth and have dominion. And all of this will be done as a display of my righteousness in your obedience don't eat the fruit, remember, in 2.15 of Genesis. 
always we must take the word of God and go back to the beginning to see what it's doing and connect it to that and see how that work of God is being worked out. And God is accomplishing his purpose. So Adam's sin, you remember, not only lost the righteousness of God, he not only lost the righteousness of God, but Adam and Eve, therefore all of mankind, became the absolute opposite of righteousness. He didn't just lose a little goodness and a little righteousness and kind of needed some mending or whatever. You see, our view of what man is before God needs to be much updated, much clearer. He became the very opposite of God's righteousness. In his total being, everything about Adam's being, his soul, his mind, his thoughts, his desires, his body, his everything became polluted with unrighteousness and came under the spell. I put it that way, the spell, the taint, the sin, the control of unrighteousness. And nothing about Adam, therefore nothing about any of us, can ever be righteous again unless God intervenes. So this makes Adam incapable of how do we get back God's righteousness. You see, if we put it on the basis of works, just love and good works and kindness, which too many Christians do. They, they put the fall on the basis of what we're doing and what we're not doing. Oh, he's this. Oh, he's that. Oh, he's doing that. And you shouldn't do that. And Jesus will free you from that. It's not about that. It's about the righteousness of God in us. Can you say amen? amen. That's what it's about. Therefore, when the righteousness of God is in us and when his righteousness is active in us by the Spirit, we will then begin to see the fruit of righteousness. And so the fruit of unrighteousness merely means that it's showing us that we're rooted in the wrong place. We're not condemned because we're doing sin. We're condemned because we are in Adam. Therefore, we are unrighteous, the very opposite of God. And God will not join us to himself being the opposite. He will only join us to himself when we are made in the similitude of himself. Therefore, the gospel becomes God's only means of restoring man to his original righteous standing. Seriously, I may not get past this this morning. I don't apologize for that because I, I, I think there's something in me that says we need to get a better grip on the fundamentals of the gospel here in a better way. It's not that we're ignorant. It's not that we are faulty. It's just always instructive to go deeper. Amen? To go deeper. To go deeper. Let's remember Philippians 3.10. What? Oh, that I may know him. Remember Paul is saying that. And then he begins to talk about the experiencing the, 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 the rigors of the cross, the sufferings of Christ, that he may enjoy, you know, the, the greatness of the resurrection of Christ. Read Philippians 3.10 and 11, and it's this man who knew Christ so well is so aching to know God more. So knowing this allows us to understand why Paul begins and builds his presentation on the fact of man's unrighteousness, first highlighting man's most desperate plight and then revealing God's most gracious solution. So God's purpose in the gospel is what? To restore us to our original, to his original intention, which is what? 
in order to be his image bearers upon the earth, we must be imaging the righteousness of our God. Amen? That's what our salvation is all about. We were saved not because we needed to be saved. We were saved because God decided each one of us would be his image bearers. Therefore, he saved us, and he has constituted in us his own righteousness. And ours now as believers is to walk in the midst of that righteousness so others may see God for who he really is and how he really is. So let's talk about the problem. Chapter 1, verse 18 I've just not even gotten to the verse yet, have I? <laughs> Here's your problem. What's wrong with being unrighteous? Before Paul points the solution, he reveals the problem. Uh, I don't know, and I'm going to say this carefully, because and, and Jason's here, and maybe he can help me with this if he, if he thinks I'm too off on this. Uh, <clears throat> I am not completely settled when we share the gospel and you're talking to someone whom you don't know, when I say you don't know, I don't mean don't know in a personal sense, but don't know spiritually by the revelation of God as what God is going to do in you. You don't have that revelation of prophecy. God is going to do something in you. That's the knowing I'm thinking about. So because we don't have that, or if we don't have that, I think it's not gospel. It's not clarity, and it's... I think it's dangerous to say, you know, Susie, and I don't know anything about you spiritually as far as what God wants to do, but, you know, Jesus loves you. I think it's very dangerous. I think it's very dangerous. Well, doesn't Jesus love everybody? Well, that's a whole story in itself. God loves his church and saves his people. God loves his people. That's what the Bible says. And so, when we talk about this issue of the gospel and sharing it, there is some kind of way, if you want to make a generic comment, you know, Jesus died to bring forgiveness and salvation to his people. Is that the truth? You can say that. That's clearly biblical. Just say something like that. And see if God connects that with the person. But some kind of way, we have to get to the place as we share the gospel of what's wrong with humanity before we get to the place of what God has done for humanity. We have to get to the place of sharing that some way. And God will give you grace, and God will give you humility, and God will give you the means, et cetera, of doing that in a way that doesn't blow them away. But be cautious about this. And, and come, let's, be, let, let's be real truthful here. How many of us, and, and I put myself in this to some extent, but not maybe as much as others. How many of us are cautious about sharing the wrath and the hell and the punishment because we're afraid that we're going to push people away and they won't believe in Jesus? How many of us kind of feel that way? Come on, come on. Come on, we, we want to be real careful not to what? Be what? What? Scare them off. That's good. Now, listen. What can I do to scare some way, someone from being saved when God has determined to save? Who am I? 
The Bible says that Jesus said that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against my church. And I think I'm going to say something. Ooh. And if I say it that way, John won't ever be saved and he'll go and go to hell forever because of the way I said it. Well, I should certainly say it correctly. But even if I am abusive in it, that man will be saved if he is under the phenology of God. Now, God may not use me, but that's my loss, Laura. That's not John's loss. That doesn't mean we don't care, but it does mean that we are not super sensitive to the issues of humanity. We're super sensitive to the issue of God. I mean, come on, come on. We're not saying, oh, go out now and blast everybody to hell that you see. We're not saying that. Don't go out of here and say, Peter said. You know, that's not. I, you know, I, I happen to be one of these guys, that he, neither G nor J. I stood in the middle and equivocated all morning, you know, in that last week's sermon. No, I got up and ran to the side that I know God put me on. Now, for those others of you on the other side, you know, God will get you over, but that's, that's another deal on another day. Just had to say that. Just had to say that. So let's look at this. Look how Paul begins the indictment in verse 18. I mean, right off the bat, the man isn't saying, look, look, be careful. I'm going to try to say this judiciously. I'm filled with grace. I love you. You know, don't be upset. You know, Paul is writing to people he don't know, as they say. He just don't know these folks. And he says, for the wrath, oh. <laughs> the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodness and un." rightness, seek ungodness and unrighteousness together, of men. Does it say that? Is that what the verse says? Bob, is that what it says? He immediately begins that way. Paul's first concern is to alert man that his sin has placed him in the greatest eternal danger. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against. Against. What is wrath? Well, the Greek word is orge. It, is, it describes God's settled attitude about or toward all unrighteousness. Now, I think, I don't know if you've had it yet, but you're going to be talking to the pivot or some of the people about God's wrath. Did you already do that? You've not done that yet. Well, this is not going to be a discussion about that in any length. But why wrath? Why wrath? You see, because wrath is the companion of love. Wrath is the companion of love. Oh, my gosh. How do you say that? What, what are you talking about? Wrath is the companion. Well, let's do it this way. You have a child whom you love dearly. And your child suddenly contracts a deadly disease. Now, what is your attitude about the disease? Do you rise up in wrath and opposition against that disease? If your child were in danger of being hurt by someone who was attacking that person, oh, well, no, I'm, I, I just love Andy. I just, just love you, brother. No. Attack my grandchild. And as old as I am, I'm coming after you. And if I can't, I'm bringing T.C. with me. And if he can't, I'm bringing Claren uh, McCracken with me. You know who these people, these are very big people in our church. 
Why? How can this God be so angry? Because he loves so much. Because we love much, we hate equally that which is antithetical to that which we love. Because we love so much and so deeply and so comprehensively, because God is that way, he is equally that way in wrath against any and everything that is opposed to his, to his righteousness. Can we get that? Wrath is just. If God were not wrathful, his love would not be very good. What drives his wrath is his love. Why wrath? Because God's love for his own righteousness demands the exact opposite to that which, is, which it opposed. God's wrath is as much a part of the gospel as is his love. Can you say amen to that, believers? You see, typically, we don't think that way. Do we really think that way? Come on, do we really think that way? No, we don't. Because we have not thought about the gospel from the perspective of God's righteousness. We have thought about it in relation to how it impacts us and the issues that we have experienced, which is okay. But there is a greater place of understanding and a deeper place of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wrath is as much a part of the gospel as is God's love. And you will see that demonstrated most clearly where? In the cross of Christ. Both Wrath and love have to do with God's personal righteousness. Love without wrath is not a righteous love. And wrath without love is not a righteous wrath. You see how righteousness controls and understands and, and, and adjusts both and causes both to be equally standing before God. Wrath is the display of his justice against all unrighteousness. Love is the display of his mercy for his people whom he loves. And these two must come together and do come together perfectly and completely in the gospel. Both are necessary and foundational to God doing what he desires to do and completing his purpose in restoring us. To, our original purpose, to his original purpose in Genesis 1 and 2. Let's make sure we see this this morning. Now, what is the result of our unrighteousness? By the way, when you look at commentary, and I'm not putting myself over these men. These men know more in a thimble than I know in all my life. But normally, chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, I think chapter 1 ends in verse 32, if I'm not correct, somewhere around there. Uh, that's normally given the Gentile world, and then chapter 2 all the way through 320 is the believing or Jewish world. I, I'm not quite sure about that. I, I've looked at this, and I've gone back and forth, and I think finally I've come to this conclusion. The general indictment is in the first several verses, and then the way it's worked out, we'll see the rest of it. <clears throat> so what happens when someone is unrighteous? They suppress you look at the word, read along with me. Who what? Suppress? What does suppress mean? Keep down, cover, don't allow to be exposed, you know, hide, correct? They suppress the truth. How? In their 
Come on, come on, I can't hear you. And they're unrighteous. It's okay to talk in class. If the teacher gives you permission to talk, you may talk. Who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Well, man's unrighteous, what, what truth? What truth? Man's unrighteousness is actively pernicious. Per who? Per who? What's pernicious mean? You're going to have to look that one up. Is actively pernicious, pursuing the goal of suppressing the truth. What truth? What truth? Not just general truth. What's the lie? What's the truth? The truth. What is the truth? The truth that Paul has been speaking about is what? God is a righteous God. It is the suppression of this primary truth by the unrighteousness of man. He is covering over the way unrighteous men live. They are covering over. They are masking the reality of the truth of who God is. And who is God, Pat? He's righteous, isn't he? He's righteous. That's the truth that we're dealing with. We're not talking about just truth in general. We're talking about the specific truth of God's righteousness. Therefore, when that truth is masked or depressed, that means that every other truth about, from, for, or anything of God is also suppressed because all the other truth of God is contained in this truth of God's righteousness. So this is the truth. They suppress the truth. What truth? The truth specifically about who God is and how God is in himself. This is the dastardly deed of sin. It is a lie about who God is and how God is in himself. Every time I sin, every time you sin, no matter what we call big or little sins, it doesn't matter. Every single time we sin, we declare God as unrighteous by that sin, don't we? That's the dastardly deed of sin. That's the danger of it. And that's the goal of Satan, that we would regularly do this. And we'll see in chapter 2 what that's all about when we get to that particular pronouncement of Paul concerning blasphemy. You see, the Gentiles suppress God's righteousness through their rejection and the Jews through their substitution. Now, I'm going to change my notes on this. I believe that's true. But I believe I want to go into a few more verses concerning the general indictment of righteousness and unrighteousness, rather, and say, first of all, this is where we all live. And then the Gentiles express their unrighteousness through immorality. So you're going to have to just write it down. I've changed my way. It is a rejection, but the rejection specifically works out in their immorality. And the moral people or the Jewish people, whoever, substitute or reject by their substituting their own morality for righteousness. Does that make sense to you? There is a rejection of God's righteousness that occurs in immorality, really bad living. And there is a rejection of God's righteousness in substituting my morality, my good deeds, my attempts for righteousness that hopefully will stand for God's righteousness. Does that, does that explain? Does that make sense to you? So I've changed, as I said this morning, I'm sitting there, you know, drinking my coffee, minding my own business, and God interrupts me. 
and he says, you didn't get it right. And I said, but I thought I did, and I thought I was hearing you. It's not that I didn't get it right. I think I just missed a couple of road signs here. Is that okay to say that, that the teacher actually missed something? Is that okay? I mean, if you don't know that by now about me, you have not sat in classes before. So let's look at this. I put in here the Gentiles. I, I think this applies to everybody. Because as I thought this morning, as God gave me revelation or understanding, my mind went back to Genesis, which I disconnected for a moment. And you see what happens. We ought not to ever disconnect from Genesis as we read the rest of the Bible. Can you say amen? Is that happening in you? Or are you connecting everything within the context and the umbrella of Genesis 1-2? We're beginning to see this. Well, look what happens here. So they, they suppress the truth. How? In their own unrighteousness. Okay? Well, how do, how, how, do, how, do, how, do, how do they do that? How do they do that? This is Gentile filthiness, moral Jewish goodness. Mankind altogether, all of us, this is who we were before we were saved. And these elements still work in us according to the flesh. These elements still work in us according to the flesh, but will be totally, completely, and forever overcome and washed out when we receive our new bodies. As long as we carry this luggage around, this deteriorating luggage, these issues will still be remaining in us. So let's make sure we see that. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Huh? Well, what about the Chinese? What about the guy in Africa? What about the guy in Alaska? What about the guy in South America what, who never heard the name of Jesus? What about those people? Would God reject those people who never had an opportunity to hear the gospel? Here's the answer to that. Don't flake under the attacks of Satan through other people who are coming against us. Amen? Don't be flakes. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is what? Duh. Plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. In other words, God is there. He's God. There is a God. Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. No such thing as atheists. The other day, one of the staff members and I were chatting away, and he said something about, I'll just say Joe, whoever this boy's name was. He said, well, you know, we had a meeting, whatever, and, you know, Joe's an atheist. I said, wait, let me correct that just a spec if it's okay. I said, Joe's not an atheist. Well, he says he is. Ah, Joe says he's an atheist. When someone tells you they're an atheist, never, ever agree with him against what God says. What does God say? There ain't no such thing as atheists. What does he say? No such thing as atheists. All you can say is, he said, she said, she or he is an atheist, okay? So when I'm speaking to someone like this, and, you know, Mary says, I'm an atheist. 
I said, well, you say you're an atheist. No, 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 I am an atheist. Well, you say you're an atheist. I am not going to decide against God on what you say. I will decide before, uh, to be on God's side by what the Bible says. Can you say amen? Don't fall for the foolishness of the world. Don't fall for it. Now, if they call you names, Joe, and all that. Oh, I said Joe, didn't I? Sorry. You know, who cares? There's no such thing as an atheist. Can we get this in our minds? God is completely and forever just, and he's completely forever good. And so, no one stands before God without not being ignorant. And this is where I'll stop today, because I just felt the Lord wanted me to bear down on this this morning, more so than I thought when I did the notes. I mean, but do you see how many more pages of notes I have here? I mean, three more pages of notes. I, we have got to get the elders to give us four hours in the morning. That means y'all had to get here five. <laughs> Before I close, I don't typically do this. Do you have any questions? Because this is, this is important things for us to see and to hear and to understand. And I do not want the enemy to take opportunity in you because you have a question and you can't figure it out or something's gnawing at you or whatever. And uh, if you do, please say so. Because this revelation of what the Holy Spirit is telling to us by this man Paul in Romans is, is a shaking to the core of our beings as people because we believe that man is intrinsically good and is not as bad as the Bible says. No thoughts. I know, I see your hand. Go ahead. Loud so I can hear you. Yes. Yes. Before we become children of God, we're all under the wrath. Okay. We're not his children, and we're not all going to become his children. That's right. So I wanted another analogy that didn't involve a child because some people are going to end up in hell. Well, if, if anybody tries to kill your mama, you're going to be antagonistic toward that person. Yep. So it, it's, it's just an analogy of just showing not save and unsaved, but it was an analogy of love and, and the way love works in protection and the manifestation of his opposition to that which wants to destroy love or come in here and destroy something that is love. Why wrath? Because of love. Why love? Because of wrath. Do, do we see both justice, mercy, or love? The same God. I'm not sure if that gets it, but that's what the analogy was about. Not necessarily being saved or unsaved. It was just the issue of why wrath? Because of love. Well, take your notes. Come back next week and, and, and read these chapters all the way to 320. Look at them. Think about it. But especially this indictment because everything that follows in this indictment and I want you to look at the indictment, especially in the latter section of Romans 1, because here's what we do as believers. We look at the sins of the world and we classify them as, oh my gosh, look at that. And Paul puts sin here of all kinds together. I think there's a descending order, which we'll see in the uh, last verses there. There's a descending order. But you have you have 
disobedience and homosexuality in the same issue. Oh my gosh. How would we feel about that kind of lifestyle? But then you see disobedience. Well, you know, unrighteousness is completely, totally, and forever the opposite of everything of God. Amen? Let's make sure we see that because the gospel has come and freed us and restored God's righteousness in us. See you next week. Thank <laughs> you.